on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's On The Job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. My name is Francis Leach. My name is Sally Rugg and I'm happy to be here. How are you, Francis? We made it to the end of another week and this was a week like un- unlike any other in recent times, Sally. <laughs> uh, yeah, it really was quite a week and I know we sort of talk a lot about Melbourne on this podcast because you and I are both based in Melbourne and so I don't want to fall into that trap so early on in the piece, but here we go. For me... Everything has been so intense with, you know, lockdown, pandemic, some really frightening, violent protests. It just has felt sort of escalating and escalating and escalating. And then the sort of like crisis point for me this week is when we had an earthquake. Did you feel the earthquake at your house, Francis? Oh, yeah. I was upstairs in our old terrace and uh, it was shake, rattling and rolling like uh, like Bill Haley in the comments. And, uh, in fact, the wall, the cornice on the top of my uh, study wall opened up and started stuff falling through it. So, uh, yeah, I, I noticed it because I had just finished the vacuuming <laughs> uh, and I had to do it again straight away afterwards. <laughs> I found it really discombobulating and disarming, I suppose. Like I I cried afterwards and I know um, regular listeners of the pod will not necessarily take that to be indicative of any anything in particular. But um, yeah, it was like, it was kind of like the last straw or something. I feel like, and maybe Francis, you can relate to this and maybe some of our listeners can relate to this as well, that um, when you've been locked down for such a long period of time, for me, my mood is so dependent on the weather, like we talked about last week, or like dependent on really elemental things like daylight savings or, um, yeah, whether it rains or not. And so something about the earth shaking, it it was too much for my feeble little stressed out brain to manage. Absolutely. I had a a bit of a cry afterwards. Fair enough too. It was one of those moments you go, what next? We've had, we've had the, we've got the plague. We've had the unrest and the riots. Now we've got the earthquake. What time are the locusts arriving and on which day are you sending the asps in as well? I mean, it's just like the plagues of Egypt that was coming down upon us in Old Testament biblical style. I mean, I don't think we have to wait for the locusts when we think about the, the mouse plague, right? Like... I'm not trying to get biblical, but I'm just I'm just saying, like, we already have sort of had that plague. Anyway, the I didn't... The are coming. They're next. Yeah. I didn't enjoy the earthquake. Um, I give it, like, one star. Uh, <laughs> happy, to, happy to not um, do that again. Wouldn't, wouldn't recommend. No. Please, no. I don't need any more stress in my life. On the Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's on the job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. We do have to talk about what happened in Melbourne, though, Sally, this week, because the unsettling scenes that we saw across the city throughout uh, the early part of the week with uh, protests directed at unions, directed at uh, the vaccination hubs, uh, at all sorts of uh, aggressive, ugly scenes across the city, which played out, makes you wonder, where is this coming from and where is it heading to next? Mm. I don't want to scoop our next guest, but in terms of where it's coming from, like if someone had told me 18 months ago that in September 2021 we would be seeing riots in the in the streets of, you know, an, an angry mob furious about how their lives have panned out in this pandemic and some really unhinged 
conspiracy theories. Um, if someone had told me 18 months ago that that was going to happen, I would have believed them because there's been a lot of work warning us that this was going to happen. So I am completely despairing um, looking at the protests this week, but also I feel despair knowing that actually we know where this has come from. And I don't think that we being the state of Victoria, but also federally as a country, I don't think we, the collective we, did enough to stop it from happening. Well, somebody who can give us an understanding of why it's happened and what to do about it is our next guest here on The Job. Josh Roos is a Senior Research Fellow at Deakin University, and he has spent his time uh, looking at the origins of protests like this, anti-vaxxers, conspiracy theorists, and far-right groups who came together this week. Josh Roos, welcome to On The Job. It's been a big week or so uh, in Melbourne and people looking on across Australia what was happening on the streets of Melbourne, initially centred around the CFMEU office and then across a, a chaotic few days in the city. Shocked a lot of people, surprised them. As somebody who's been researching far-right groups and conspiracy groups and the like, was it a shock to you? Certainly not. Um, this has been part of a continuum. Uh, whilst it's obviously quite sensational and uh, there's violence in the streets and there's a lot of media attention, this is part of a broader pattern that's been going on for, for quite a period of time. If we look back five years, five, six years, 2015, 16, we saw the re-emergence of the far right uh, through you know the Patriots groups and small protests. Then uh, over, since lockdown, we've seen the emergence of um, the conspiracy movements, QAnon, uh, coinciding what's happening in the US, uh, but also uh, anti-vaxxer groups and, and the far right, but small. What we've seen more recently is that escalating as they're getting more organised, as the lockdown's been prolonged, and we saw it on Saturday, and then we've seen it again this last, uh, last few days. When you're looking at the vision that we have been seeing on the nightly news and across our social media pages of the level of violence from these protesters, does that come as a shock for you? Like, I think a lot of people were really, really shocked by the, that it had moved just not, not just from sort of like people gathering against restrictions, but smashing cars and, and buildings and rocks. Does, does that level of anger and aggression surprise you? There's probably two dimensions to that. I mean, on the first hand, there's a lot of frustration and anger out there in the community, in particular amongst people who've basically been stuck at home. There's uh, people who've been out of work on and off for the for the past 18 months. There's a sense of being, you know, not only pressed in some, some areas of the community, in particular those who can't work from home, but also um, just a lot of sort of latent anger, and that's been fed through social media and other outlets by a lot of far-right groups and, and others. And a different dimension to this is that, look, the rhetoric on these uh, Telegram and encrypted chat groups has been quite violent for a prolonged period of time as well. There's been a lot of talk about, um, you know, freedom, tyranny, liberty at any cost, getting out and confronting police. And, and we've seen these protests escalate so that they're not just a peaceful gathering of people expressing a view. There's running um, street confrontations with police. And that's been happening for quite a while. Uh, it's important to remember, for example, that these groups met at the Shrine twice last year prior to, to this year, but that's been lost, I suppose, in the um, in the fog of it all. Right. I had forgotten that. And so the, when they met at the Shrine last year, was it also anti-lockdown, the virus is a hoax type thing? Again, like, it's, it's really complex, but these groups are generally coming, they're affinity groups. They come in and they gather around a single cause, and the single cause is lockdown and um, 
everything from being forced to wear masks to you know not being able to travel and this idea that the state's oppressing people and deliberately seizing power um you know tyranny and, and so on all this language borrowed by the way from the american right uh libertarian language uh language we've seen that trump has deployed very successfully and those around him um that he's tacitly sort of approved of in the alt-right the far right and and this language has been uh, brought in through social media straight into the Australian protest movements. Mm. So so it's been active for quite a while and they've, they've been framing it as uh, oppression for quite a while. And that sort of like bringing in that language from the US in pro-Trump, QAnon, um, far-right movements and groups over there, my understanding is it's been less of a sort of like passive osmosis of this language and these attitudes, right? And that there's a there are elements of coordination and um, deliberate organising that's coming from overseas groups. Is that right? Is that what you've seen in your research? It's a, it's a really interesting point. If you, like, I've been, I kind of jumped on top of what was going on with the far right, these patriots groups from the outset, particularly when they were still allowed on Facebook and social media, and they'd have 40 or 50,000 followers pretty quickly, and it's like surely there's not forty or 50,000 people jumping on board with this in, in Melbourne and Sydney and in Australia. Um, so you do an analysis of where these people are coming from and, look, for the most part, uh, many Americans were, were jumping on board. So this is, this is transnational um, in many respects. There's a transnational sort of support network. Look, there is no doubt that certain activists do talk. Obviously, uh, Thomas Sewell, who's facing charges at the moment, you know, has been held up in certain aspects of uh, the US and done a, a few appearances over there. More recently with the protests, um, we've seen uh, the, the person live streaming it, uh, Real Rukshan or whatever his name is. He's been doing Fox News interviews. There's this you know, interchange of not only ideas but common language and there's an international movement. I'm not privy to their encrypted messaging and, and what they're saying to each other, but I do know that they're certainly drawing inspiration from one another. Josh, every virus will look for a willing host, and this particular virus decided that the union movement, and particularly the construction union, was ripe for the picking, and it went there. And it was evident on Monday that, of course, there were tradespeople there, there were some unionists there for sure who were not happy with the deal that the CFMEU might have been trying to do with the government around six hours work for eight hours pay. All of that was true, but what we was revealed later in the week, that the core of this was some elements from those groups we've just talked about had consciously identified the workers in those sites as being ripe for the picking. Talk to us about how they might have made that uh, that, that decision and, and what they were aiming to do, why they thought those workers were susceptible to their message. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question and it cuts to the heart of basically what's going on and, and the concern. I think ultimately in history, there's obviously been um, – trade unions have been seen as the vanguard of the left and obviously the, the right, where possible, uh, in particularly the far right, have sought to crack the trade unions and, and bring the workers over to them and to basically mobilise. We saw – and we've seen that through the rise of fascism, national socialism and so on. And I think most people, particularly in the trade union movement, are, are pretty aware of, of what's ha- happened in history. More recently, I mean, look, there's certainly been a, uh, a targeting and an appropriation um, of the language of who represents the workers. 
the, the core narrative of what we saw, particularly um, on day one of the CFMEU protest and shortly thereafter, particularly by certain actors, not all, not all protesters are far right, but certain actors were trying to frame this as we're representing the workers, we're the workers, the trade unions have let us down, the go- they're in bed with the government, they're forcing us to take this vaccine, they're putting us out of work, they're, they're the problem. And so it really is about targeting uh, a point, a perceived point of weakness in, um, in the left. Now, the CFMEU, uh, and I don't know how much you want to go into that um, on this podcast, but have obviously also allowed themselves to be drawn down that path. And there are absolutely right-wing politics embedded in the CFMEU uh, that need to be uh, effectively explored and understood and then ideally um, engage with or disengage with, however you want to frame that. Is this also being replicated elsewhere in other sections of the communities where there are points of weakness as well? At trade unions, you explain that. There's sort of cohort of young men who are out of work or feel like they're, they're, they're getting a raw deal and that anger's been exploited. Have they consciously picked other areas within, other sectors within the community to try to replicate that sort of behaviour? Yeah, it's hard. You don't want to ascribe them too much capability, but on the other hand, they are skilled recruiters and they are um, cognizant. I mean, th- these, these are people who are quite learned uh, in in the dimensions of, you know, early fascism, early national socialism, and, and how those events took hold. I mean, it would be silly, um, I think I've said disingenuous to say that, you know, these are morons. Occasionally they might appear that way, but there are some intelligent uh, people with quite nefarious agendas who are actively seeking to grow and to grow their movement. And so they do look, and, and I do a lot of work in violent extremism and terrorism studies and, and research. They exploit fault lines. It's really about where the fault lines are and the cracks are because that's where, you know, you aim your efforts. We saw Brenton Tarrant in Christchurch exploit that jurisdictional fault line between Australia and New Zealand, but also the racial fault lines over there um, where you could be a white guy and go shooting and make threats. No one blinked an eye. So there's, there's cultural fault lines, there's political fault lines, there's legal fault lines. And obviously the, the union movement, as uh, strong as it, it remains, has also been um, decimated in terms of membership across a lot of sectors. So really there's an effort, particularly in the labour hire and the casualised workforce and precarious workforce, to, to mobilise those men, in particular the men. And so what can we do, right, when unions like the CFMMEU are sort of being targeted as a place where workers with far-right sympathies can, you know, find recruitment opportunities perhaps or, um, you know, when our groups and our movements are being infiltrated with people with nefarious agendas and quite radical fringe beliefs, like what can we do as individuals and as community members to tackle this challenge? Well, yeah, it's the million-dollar question um, in, in some ways. Do you not have it? Because <laughs> we wouldn't have invited you on if you didn't have the answer, mate. No, no, there's a, there's a number of um, different approaches. Look, I think first and foremost, awareness is critical, awareness of what's actually going on and an ability to actually spot what's going on in your workplace with your friends. I've heard so many stories of people who tell me that, their family member or their friends or someone, they're, they're cutting off a friendship or a family member because they've been drawn down that rabbit hole. They've been drawn down the rabbit hole of the anti-vaxxers or the conspiracy theorists like QAnon or they've been drawn down the far right increasingly through their language and, and so on as well. 
it's not just dividing, like, for example, the trade union movement. It's dividing families. It's dividing people at home. So being able to spot what's going on first and foremost is critical. Being able to identify that this person's being drawn to an alternative narrative. What we talk about in uh, studies of violent extremism and, and terrorism are narratives. Narratives are effectively stories. All right, it's what story do you subscribe to? Do you subscribe to the fact that in this country, if you work hard and you, you know, have a bit of solidarity, you know, you can build a good life for your family, get your kids educated and build something? Or do we subscribe to the fact that, you know, and a, a right-wing narrative, that the government's oppressing people, the government's becoming a left-wing uh, totalitarian dictatorship, the only answer is to join this alternative movement, this far-right movement, and reclaim Australia for Australians and so on. So you've got to be able to spot, well, what's the messaging? What, what am I hearing from this other person? Or what am I hearing in my work site and so on from these other groups? Then it's about a matter of, all, you know, how do you, how do you engage with that? And instantly dismissing people from your live um, or from your work site and saying, well, I don't want anything to do with you or we're going to sack you for being at this protest isn't necessarily going to help your cause. You've actually got to, you know, attempt to bring people on and, and actually have conversations and, and actually have that discussion about where to from here. It's about face-to-face discussion where possible. They've exploited COVID because you can't have those face-to-face discussions. That's a really good point. But how do you have that conversation is a really difficult thing to do. Yeah, well, let's start with, like, you're making a really important point about the quality of the media that's being produced. So the, the, these, are, these are professionally produced uh, materials. You've got to ask yourself, why are the political right, the hard right, so interested in developing their own mainstream, their own form of media? Uh, Avi Amani, Real Russian, others, Steve Bannon um, and Breitbart and others, they're very focused on developing their own media companies and their own form of dissemination of information. It's professionally produced, it's slick, and often for someone who's not necessarily critically engaged, it's quite easy to fall into that trap. And I've had family members send me some of this material saying, oh, this is concerning, what's going on? And I had to look into it and I'm like, well, this person has a doctorate, but a doctorate in, um, you know, something entirely unrelated to the area, but they they cloak themselves in legitimacy. So in terms of having those conversations, um, and I'm reluctant to sort of try to give a one-size-fits-all solution, but a a key part is we do know that families, particularly in radicalised segments of the community, and I've done a lot of work on um, Islamist radicalisation, families are pretty critical. It's about spotting the individual. um, They're the people closest to them. It's about um, having those conversations and putting the foot down at times. We also know there's been a lot of work done to um, get families to be prepared to engage with government when there is an individual of concern who might be off going off to fight or to you know, commit an extremist act. And the vast majority of information um, that goes to the uh, police in relation to Islamist extremism are from the people who know them. All right, so it's about not just spotting it, but also having the uh, conversations with people you know, breaking it down. And look, people go off on tangents. I really truly believe that once people are back at work, um, there's going to be a really, you know, enhanced capability to do that. People have lost the opportunity to socialise. People have lost the opportunity to, um, you know, build self-esteem and and trajectories and have some sort of autonomy over their life. They won't be at home scrolling through social media, and that's another dimension of the problem. Uh, They won't be um, getting this sort of, echo chamber of stuff 
they'll actually be forced to have face-to-face conversations. Can I ask you about one other element to this, which I find fascinating, and we talk about the sophistication of, of these groups, is their own internal language. I take the Pepe the Frog meme, for instance, which was this green frog. I don't know if you're aware of the Pepe the Frog, yeah. Sally, the, the way that the far right in America <laughs> used it as a, a way to offset the serious nature of what they were talking about to sort of undermine any dialogue around it. That It was almost mockingly um, knowing in its stupidity, but also showed that there was a conscious effort to to undercut the seriousness of what these groups were doing. So there is a way that these groups have now sort of tried to build and cultivate people by saying we're not really serious about the things we talk about. We're only joking. It's trolling. We're just shitposting. But at the same time, at a different track, they're embedding these ideas and at some point when they feel bold enough, they flick the switch or they they change the narrative and say it's time to act. Is, is that how you see that, Josh? Yeah, the they're masters of obfuscation. Um, the, the language and the, the memes and everything else obfuscate what the real message is. So the, the OK sign uh, has become a big one. And we've seen it used in so many different contexts by so many people to communicate what their you know, real cause is. I really do want to go back to another way to address this issue as a whole. Yeah. What's critical here is, is that radicalisation and attraction to you know, alternative narratives of you know extremism and so on and violence, they they operate best when people feel isolated. They operate best uh, in the darkness, um, in reaching people in their living rooms, in in their homes when they're scrolling social media and they're looking for answers. I cannot emphasise enough the role of solidarity in this and the role of um, a sense of belonging in this. And if there's anything that's a strength of uh, the union movement in this, it's, it's that sense of solidarity and belonging to something bigger than yourself. And, you know, the union marches, the union sort of um, workplaces where there's actually engagement, where there's that challenge with solidarity is in, in those casual workforces. Mm. Um, and I would argue that for its own sake as a, as a whole, the, um, the union movement needs to do so much more where possible to engage individuals working on you know remote work sites, and to engage people um, in non-union workplaces where possible. Now, obviously, that's that's uh, the whole challenge, but that's ultimately a key element. It's that sense of solidarity that's missing in people's lives, because what the far right offer them is solidarity. Belong to us. Just by joining us, you're becoming part of something bigger than yourself. So they need people need to feel that they belong to something. Josh, thanks for being with us on the job today. If people want to read more about what you've written on this particular issue, and, and no doubt more of it uh, is going to unfold as this pandemic progresses and, and, and onwards from there, where can they go? Is there a website people can uh, find your stuff? Um, I'll just uh, anything I've sort of said or written on um, in the media is pretty pretty explanatory. Um, I've got a conversation piece about what occurred that came out this week. I've also got a book called The New Demagogues, uh, Religion, Masculinity and the, New, and the Populist Epoch. And in that, I look, amongst other things, at the role of um, trade unions, the fact that trade unions have traditionally offered intellectual leadership for, for working people. And with the decimation of trade union membership over time, we've lost that sense of leadership and that sense of solidarity. And, and that's been a big contributor to the rise of global populism across the West. So, uh, yeah, the new demagogues, which is also available. Thanks for being with us on the job. We'll catch you again soon. We'd love to have you back when we can. Yeah, great. Thanks for the invite. Cheers. 
Josh Roos there talking to us here on the job. And that's it for another episode. Sally, thank you very much once again. And uh, people can find you at Sally Rugg on the socials. That's right. And you're at at St. Frankly. I still am. As long as it hasn't been shaken down by the earthquake. And don't forget that give us a review. We love to uh, hear from you. Uh, whichever podcast app you're using, uh, give us a review so other people can find the information and the inspiration. And we'll catch you next week on the job. See you, Sal. Bye. Bye.